True story. I once cussed out a fly for landing on my bath towel. Be advised. Hey y'all, I'm Jen. I'm from Oakland and I'm a queer black feminist scholar. This is Darren, hailing from the mean streets of Anaheim. I'm an introvert, a novelist, and a nerd. We're early 30-somethings with three kids and over a decade of marriage. This is a podcast about the realities of blackness and adult life. We do adult differently. This is That Black Couple. Hello. I hear that you all bougie people don't drink brown liquor. So you can grab your gin and your juice and have a seat. Because it's that black couple. This is Jen. This is Darren. And we're going to get started with episode three. So this week we're talking about toxic masculinity and the black family. And we'll do, for the first section, first things first, we'll talk about how we were introduced to toxic masculinity and what it means in our lives for the conversation. We'll actually talk more about the shows and stuff that we watched growing up in the 90s and even the shows that we watch now. And in reflection, we'll talk about how toxic masculinity shows up for us in our daily lives and also how our upbringings and our experiences with our mothers, our experiences now have changed our perspectives on masculinity and what it means for us now. And before we get started, make sure that you follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at ThatBLKCouple. You can find us on the web at ThatBlackCouple.com. You can find us on Facebook at ThatBlackCouple. Let's get it started. Okay, so this is an interesting topic because how did we come up? We came up with this one day in the bed. We were laying there and I was like, we should do an episode on toxic masculinity. And then we actually planned the entire episode before we fell asleep. Yeah, this was, I think this was like the part of the genesis of the podcast. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think when we were talking about it, we were talking about the fact that we both come from single parent households growing up with our moms and how we interacted with masculinity was interesting because we grew up in matriarchal households. Right. And for me, my main thing was that my mother, my mother was very critical of men growing up she's very leery <laughs> she was like i don't know i don't trust it and you know that went like male leadership in my church and you know men in entertainment shoot she we couldn't listen to Smokey robinson she didn't trust him who else like you didn't we were talking about the other day that the debarges yeah the debarges you can you can listen to couldn't listen to the barges she was <laughs> like they're too light-skinned <laughs> And I know they're only getting that money because they're light-skinned. They're not even that talented, you know. And there, Wait, and there was a comedian, too, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, Red Fox. Red Fox. Didn't trust him. So I didn't really have a lot of exposure to masculinity in my household. So I interacted with masculinity through television shows and church. You know, I had an older brother, but he was much. he's much older than me. And my dad didn't live in the household. I had uncles, but it wasn't like I came home and there was a male figure in the house. Right. So I learned a lot about men from TV and actually from cousins or deacons or pastors. I don't know. It's 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 funny because in some respects it's like, oh, that's sad. I mean, it worked. It absolutely worked. I know for me, I, I kind of had a similar thing, right? So I, I grew up in, in a single parent household with my mom. I didn't have a lot of male figures around. I had an abundance of, of women around everywhere that were always, you know, there willing to help me and guide me. And, but I had that same thing where I didn't, you know, I didn't have a lot of male, strong male figures really, really present in my life. And so I had that same thing where watching TV is kind of where I've got a lot of my ideas of what masculinity is and what it's supposed to be and what it's not supposed to be. And I think a lot of people even when they do have male figures in the household, really get that same kind of influence from watching TV and movies because yeah. it's that it's that social um, entertainment aspect of like kind of sublimin- subliminally sending you these messages of 
this is what a man looks like. This is how a man oper- operates. This is how a man treats a woman. This is how a man walks through the world. And I like that that was kind of how we came into the idea of really talking about toxic masculinity because people, I think people talk about toxic masculinity a lot, but not so much from an entertainment focus and how we were kind of born and bred and raised on these images in in the media and how that influences who we are and how we view masculinity. Right. Then, so I have to ask you because, you know, you're a dad and the fact that you did grow up in a single parent household and it was a matriarchal kind of environment where you grew up, where you had a lot of women who are around, then how, so A, then how does that factor into you being the male role model of young black boys? And then also, how did you come to really learn what parts of masculinity were toxic and what parts were non-toxic and worth keeping? Both very good questions. Are they? Very, very good questions. To start, I think when when I think about growing up as a kid and not having a dad that was really around very much and having to kind of figure out what masculinity was supposed to be and what it was supposed to look like and trying to decide what kind of adult I wanted to be, I really did. I mean, I really did look at TV shows and say, you know, I want to be that stand up dad who's there and is always around and is, you know, the best and is always hoisting on people's shoulders and and lauded as the best dad ever and the best guy ever and he's you know the paragon of of what masculinity is supposed to be so early on definitely the cosby show Mm. definitely the cosby show that's rough it's very rough you know hindsight it's really hard to look back now and say that that was a big influence but it was and it was for me it was a big influence because you know heathcliff huxtable was he was on the show a great dad you know he was always around he was counseling his kids he was affluent he he had a great job people in the community looked up to him they asked him for advice he he gave it he supported people he pushed them towards their dreams and at the same time he also wasn't you know just soft and nice he was a hard when he needed to be and so for me it was like okay this is this is an idea of of how you can really be that figure that like this is this is the example of of the black dad right yeah especially when you think about all these ideas of, of black dads being absent and not really and even if they they aren't absent not really being active in their kids lives or or just being present and not being there emotionally with their kids to me you know cliff on the cosby show he 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 crossed those lines. And right. So that was a big deal. But what's funny about that now, like not funny, haha, but funny about like his intention in situating Cliff in that kind of very respectable position of like, I'm going to break the stereotype. I'm going to make Cliff different from the narrative. It falls right in line with Cosby's whole pull up your pants and don't name your kids Bonquisha, right? Exactly. And his anti-blackness in in creating Cliff in that way. And what how what's funny is that people always talk about like, you know, art mimic life or does life mimic art? And I I really it's very sad to me that people don't understand that so much of our lives are conditioned by what we absorb as children from the television, especially like for me, I know for you too, like we were latchkey kids. Like I walked home from school and I was home by myself, you know, for hours, for hours, I'd be home from, from school. What do I do at that time? I mean, I do homework, but I watch TV. Of course I watch Mm -hmm. TV. And so I watched a lot of television. I watched Nickelodeon for like legit four hours a day. (laughs) This is before the the CDC or whoever else was like, children should only watch two hours. (laughs) This is before there was a such thing as like screen time. Right. We didn't know shit about that in the 90s. Screen time. Nigga, I'm watching Screen time was every time. Exactly. Screen time is all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, like, and that's that's the funny thing. Like, you're talking about Cliff and it's just so triggering for me because like, like, I couldn't stand Cliff. I couldn't stand his fucking sweaters. I hated those fucking sweaters. I didn't like his little short afro. He was weird to me. Like he seemed skeezy. I didn't trust him. But it's because, <laughs> but it's because like I grew up, you know, like I grew up in the hood. I grew up where folks like Cliff and the Cosbys were like folks who looked down at folks like me. 
Right. You know, I, I was the character that they would write into the show every few weeks to remind the kids on the show that they were wealthy. You know how they always had that kid like, oh, they don't have the stuff you have. And that was a lesson for the week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was that kid. <laughs> and so it was really hard to watch. Um, I know it was hard to watch the Cosby show for me. But yeah, I mean, go ahead. You continue the questions in your, in your corner. You continue. <laughs> well, OK. So like I said, Cosby was a big one. And I think I think also the timing because that came out, if I remember correctly, it came out in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. So I was, when it really first came on and it had that really, really terrible 80s looking like theme song, if y'all remember, it looked really bad and it had like the, the, the people shifting it. It was really bad. They had a lot of, of they themes had on the theme show. Shows? Like every two years, they, they changed really? it up. Really? I thought it was always in dancing people on that white screen. No, that was the most famous one. But uh, like the first one looked real, like, you remember what p- pictures looked like in the 80s? Like, mm-hmm. and they had like, like those lasers in the background and oh. stuff. It was that kind of quality. It was a mess. Oh, um, I believe it. But like, yeah, the point was that it came out in that late 80s time frame. So mm-hmm. for us, I mean, we were still little kids. So for me, that was really something that was present for a long period of time right for me as a kid seeing seeing a dominant male figure on tv but i would say and i wouldn't say this this as a, as a father i would say for masculinity purposes the flip side of that for me was martin because i feel like when martin came on tv it was personality like he mm-hmm. was he was just he was brash and he was loud but he was also very very headstrong in achieving what he wanted to achieve. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I mean, that that was the big part of Martin. When you think about his character on the show, it was him and his career and all the steps he did in his career and how, how that was basically the majority of his life. And then it was also his relationship with Gina. Mm-hmm. And that relationship was, was, he was very, I would say like uber masculine. Yeah. It was, it was, it was very sexual. And toxic as fuck. Yes. Very toxic, very demeaning in a lot of ways. Um, Gina was reduced in a lot of ways to body, body parts. Lips, um, hips, lips, hips, thighs, head. eyes. I mean, that was, that was kind of her role on the show for Martin was, this is someone that I'm going to take to the bedroom. I can't remember how many times on that show. So it was nasty. like, okay, let's go to the bedroom now. And that was the end of a scene. Oh, Jesus, like, girl. <laughs> Ciao. And so when you think about that, when you think about as a kid watching, I mean, because we were what? I'm like so triggered school, right now. Like yeah. junior high, high school when that was big. I mean, you th- that's, you know, that's puberty time. That's when, you know, people start really thinking about real relationships and the formative years of that. And that's what we're watching on TV. Right. Problematic. So then I'm wondering, so back to my second question then, thinking about what parts to think of as toxic and what parts as non-toxic, what parts to keep and what parts to throw out. Because I think that when you think about this show as someone who is masculine, right, versus someone who is feminine, you're talking about Martin. For me, my experience with that show is going to be very different from yours. Right. Right. So then what, what do you take away from a show like that? What is What is tragic, I think, at the time for me as I was really trying to come into what I thought my manhood was relationships and courting and all that stuff is a big part of that. And so part of uh, thinking about thinking back at that time, I really thought to some degree that I had to take on some of those roles and, and, and some of those attitudes because that's what manhood was. Right. And I think that that's the other thing to note here is like, we're talking about um, entertainment and, and all the messages and things that we see in entertainment but we also have to note that those things are then reinforced partly by the collective watching of these things and how we we repeat the things that they say in, in groups and circles. Absolutely. And, and those jokes. And then Listen. also in life and how we operate in those same ways. And we see people like, oh, that, that guy's just like Martin. 1996, my signature phrase was damn Gina. Right. Anything that happened, I said damn Gina. And everybody laughed. And you're not at that age. You're not at a point where you can be critical about no what clue. You know, no clue. And I think it's interesting because I, I, so, so toxic masculinity is interesting because we talk about masculinity, and in my opinion, most of masculinity is toxic. Like I have the opinion that masculinity, it's hard to find a version of masculinity that isn't actually toxic, because so much of masculinity is based on performance of strength and performance of dominance and power over someone who is perceived or others or a group of people who are perceived as weaker people who are perceived as incapable of taking care of themselves 
and and masculinity is not always just about gender so it's not like you know it's about a gender binary you know uh we don't subscribe to that anyway but like it's not a male female conversation it's about how one is any in any human body embodies a a masculine presenting persona and the ways that society often you know privileges folks who present as masculine right and that's why i was really thinking about this this episode and how we're going to go at it because i remember for me like like i said cosby i didn't trust that nigga i was like fuck this dude i mean i always remember thinking like yo like claire is way finer than him and like and a boss and a boss and way smarter than this dude and what the fuck is she doing with him? Like, th- like this don't make no sense. Well, and that I think that's the other thing that always gets me about these shows is because I would have those same thoughts, right? And I think I think that's something that's also permeated through through culture and society is that you can make up for it, right? Like, right, because you're I got funny. A good job, <laughs> like so I can be a trash ass individual, <laughs> but you know I got a good job and my car looks right and I got these good benefits, so. Right, or, and it's or not I keep my haircut low, or you know. Right, and it's not just the phenotypical thing, right? So like Cosby's not my cup of tea, looking wise, and obviously he's a trash ass person. We know what his, what's happening with him now, but not just phenotypically, but like he wasn't actually particularly charismatic. That that goofy, corny, like goofy face he makes when he's eating Jello, that shit is not cute. There's nothing debonair about fucking Bill Cosby. Like, no one's going to tell me that there's anything cute about this nigga. And I think for me, like, I remember watching the show and be like, dude, this is a goofball. Like, this is a legit goofball. You know, some people are into that or whatever, but Claire was just, like, popping. And, like, she was so fine. And I was just like, man, like man you know she ran she ran oh my god and i think that's the thing like same thing goes for martin like gina was fine gina is fine pam fine everybody else was better looking on the show than martin right i mean and when you think about gina like she was a high-powered ad executive right remember that she was always going to work in them suits and when they showed her with them shoulder pads with them shoulder pads with them shoulder pads yes (laughs) And when and when she was at work, when they had those scenes at work with her and Pam, who worked at the same firm, right? They were like running business meetings, like high power business meetings of like ad campaigns. I mean, they were doing like real hardcore work. And Pam was very smart. She was right. But the focus was always, oh, Martin, you know, he got a radio show. Bye, you know, like romanticizing the idea that that he's an entertainment, he's doing something so much cooler and so much so much better than just you know this little job to the side and that's my point like i feel like we're suggesting that masculinity in and of itself is not toxic right that masculinity all by itself is like benign right and i think that there are ways that we can trouble that concept we can think about masculinity and say sure if we if we're thinking about masculinity just as one the way one's one presents oneself if we think about masculinity as like you know the way one dresses or the way one moves throughout the world in terms of one's embodiment sure but if that embodiment also involves those types of dominant behaviors those behaviors that often escalate into a certain type of toxic toxicity that becomes violent right it's like well then maybe toxic masculinity is not really what we're talking about right Right. maybe what we're talking about is is escalated toxic masculinity or maybe maybe we should start thinking about masculinity as inherently toxic just by the nature of, of of the way we envision being masculine well and that was the question right the question you posed to me was how did I kind of pick and choose what was good and what was bad and what to remove and what and what to keep? And for me, I think I, I had kind of like a crisis, right? Because you have these messages, you have the, the Martins out there where people are saying that's how you're supposed to be. That's that's a big, strong man. That's, you know, he really embodying his manhood, right? And so you're kind of told you're supposed to be that way. But then I kind of had that crisis of realizing, well, that's not true to who I actually am as a person. Right. And so does that mean that I'm not a man? Does that mean that I'm less, quote, quote unquote, less of a man? Or does right. it mean, like, what does that actually mean, what does that mean if I don't fit into this paradigm? Right. What does that mean for folks who identify as male but who do not embody masculine on those terms? Right. And that's what I'm wondering. And that's why I think, I don't know, that's why I think it's interesting when we talk about toxic masculinity. Like, it's a really, it's a phrase that people throw around a lot right now. And I'm just wondering because I, I don't... It bothers me because I feel like there needs to be some nuance, right? Like there needs to be some conversation around a, what makes masculinity toxic and what makes it non-toxic, 
And is it actually possible? And what is the spectrum, right? Because when I think about you, like when I met you, I didn't go, oh, look at that masculine, manly man. You know, (laughs) I honestly feel like if you had presented as more masculine, I would not have been into you. Right. Because I'm not particularly interested in folks who I personally identify as uh, masculine presenting. That's not something that I'm particularly interested in. What's interesting is that you you are read as a heterosexual man, but in some ways you don't subscribe to a lot of those embodiments, right? right? You don't embody masculinity and heterosexuality and manliness, whatever that is, on the same terms as is often prescribed when those terms are used. And so for me, I always think about, I always think about like, well, then how do we figure this shit out? Right? Like, and I think the reason why you don't embody them is because growing up in your household, it wasn't like you had anybody to mimic. It wasn't like you had someone like, oh, that's how you be a dad. Right. That's how you be a man. That's how you, you know, you didn't have that, you know? And for me growing up in my household, like I wasn't like, oh, there's a guy and that's what a man's supposed to do. When he loves a woman, if that's, you know, and that's how a heterosexual marriage works. Got it. You know, like we didn't have a formula for that. And honestly, I think that, you know, I keep thinking about um, Insecure and Yvonne Orji's uh, Mm -hmm. role in the show. Yeah, Molly's breakdown and how people were like, oh, my gosh, she's being dramatic. And how other people were like, no, it's her whole world is breaking up before her very eyes. And I just feel somewhere in the middle. I kind of feel like, yeah, she absolutely had this example. You know, Molly's parents had been together for 35 years or whatever it is. And, you know, she had this example of marriage and of men and woman and heterosexual coupling. And that's what she had envisioned for herself. And she had marked it down in her book, probably somewhere in a diary and probably had envisioned the colors of her wedding and what her baby names would be and all probably that like, shit. Probably had like a vision board. She probably played MASH. And like <laughs> landed on the mansion <laughs> and figured out, you know, how many kids they would be and where, where they work and shit. I don't know what else they have in MASH. I forgot that how to play the game. But, you know, she probably had her whole life planned out. And so for her, that probably did rock her whole damn world, mm-hmm. you know. But I, I keep thinking about the ways what I, what's what's critically important is like the ways that we are conditioned into these things. Right. The ways that we are socialized and conditioned into these states of being. And how we don't come to know otherwise until we're either forced to or until we have to unlearn the shit that we've already learned. That was kind of what happened for me. For one, like I said, I didn't match right. a lot of the images that I saw. And so I had to decide, okay, am I going to just try and change myself to just be these people? Which honestly is hard in and of itself because these aren't full whole people. Right. Like, their images and their situations and their certain relationships and if you did try to just embody and be a certain person, you have to fill in a lot of gaps. Right. <laughs> so that's already hard in and of itself. But then I had to figure out, okay, well, how do I want to lead my life and, and how do I want to be? And so part of that was, as as you know, as we were saying, you know, coming into college, I came and I was like, I'm just going to be me. I'm going to do my best to just be free and find out what, what that is. The other piece, I think, is that you helped me a lot because you challenged me. Even as we're talking about all these images and things. A lot of these things I think are subliminal, and I think like there's some other shows that we haven't even talked about yet, where I think they kind of subliminally program you into ways, into doing things in a certain way that you don't even realize. Right. And so someone points it out and says, you do realize that what you're doing is just hurtful and wrong. And you do realize that it's marginalizing me, and then it's prioritizing you over everyone else. Right. And and that is just an overtly masculine thing to do. And that and, and patriarchal. Right, and patriarchal. And if you have an actual equally yoked and equally bonded relationship, that wouldn't be present. Right. All right. So we're back and it's time to have the conversation. So the conversation will be kind of extension of what we just talked about a minute ago, but we're going to talk about some concrete examples that we remember from some of our favorite shows. So I, I am going to talk about family matters. 
Oh, Family Matters. Oh, Family Matters. So, two of the most prominent male characters on the show, if you remember, were Carl Malone and Steve. What was Steve's last name? He was not Carl Malone. Or Kel. That was Carl Winslow. Did I say Malone? You said Carl Malone. This is not basketball. This is basketball. (laughs) I'm like, NBA jams. (laughs) Carl Malone. (laughs) Carl Winslow and Steve Urkel. There you go. A.K.A. Stefan Arkell. <laughs> so, I, I was I was talking to Dan about this episode where the episode where Harriet quit, mm-hmm. and she was like, "You know, I'm sick of washing dishes, and I'm tired of sweeping all the things. And Eddie, you never clean your room. And Laura, this is your cheerleading outfit, and you won't iron it. And <laughs> um, and she quit, and she was done." And I remember that was that episode when Harriet quit was one of the first times for me that I saw what gender roles look like. Right. It was the first time when I saw, oh, this is what happens when you have a heterosexual coupled household with multiple children. You know, this is the formula that a lot of traditional families try to follow where the mom you know, stays at home and cooks and cleans and the man goes out and does the hard work of the day or whatever it is. Because it in my house, I took the trash out and I swept and mopped and, you know, my mom cooked. My mom cooks very well. Yes. Very well. Um, yes, she and she taught me and now I cook very well. But we shared chores. So, you know, I always thought that, that cleaning was a family thing. You know, on Saturday mornings, we would all get up and clean and go to IHOP after and eat pancakes and stuff. So for me, it was like, everybody cleans. (laughs) But on Family Matters, they didn't. And so I remember this episode because Harriet quit and the house legit broke the fuck down. Like, it was like, oh my God, how do you wash dishes? Oh shit. There's a car. Where does the gas go? Right. Oh my God, there's a washing machine. There are bubbles coming out the washing machine. What do we do? They actually did that on the episode. I thought they? so, didn't they? Didn't they, they did have that. bubbles come out the washing machine? I, I mean, like literally nobody in the fucking house knew how to wash anything. I mean, it's shocking that they didn't have boo-boo in their drawers because they probably didn't know how to clean their own asses no, if Harriet didn't clean their asses. Exactly. You never know shit. They might have boo-boo in their drawers. So, so <laughs> what was interesting about the episode is after Harriet quits and everybody is all like, oh, we can't do nothing. Then they basically go, oh, we're so sorry. We're so sorry. We love you. Come back to us. Don't quit or whatever. And then at the end, she's like, oh, thank you. I'll come back. And that was legit the whole fucking answer. It was like, I will now go back into my gender roles to doing all the stuff that you all took me for granted for and nothing will change and you all will continue to be trash ass family members who have no capability or responsibility or accountability in your own lives. And I will no longer be trying at all to raise adult people who can take care of their own selves or be a responsible partner to a man who should be able to watch his own damn draws. Yeah. I mean, they were incapable. That was legit the end of the episode. And I remember like being really disappointed with the outcome and feeling like, damn, this heterosexual shit is, is fucking trash. Like, if getting married means that I have to sit around somewhere and clean somebody's dirty boo-boo draws, you can keep that shit. Like, you can keep it, like, forever. And it's funny because, like, I remember that episode, the laugh track was popping. Oh, yeah, there were plenty of opportunities to laugh. That shit is not funny, though. Like, it's not, I remember, I was not really laughing. I did not think that was funny. That that episode was probably one of the least funny episodes to me. I remember thinking, y'all are trifling as fuck. Y'all are trifling. Y'all can't use no washing machine. I was washing my own clothes at like six. It's not hard. I think I was washing my own clothes before I was fully potty trained. It's actually almost foolproof. If you just follow the very simple basic directions. It's a washing machine. It's soap and a button. That's it. And y'all got bubbles in the kitchen? (laughs) So the other episode that killed me, that just, it had me, it had me, and not in a good way, is when... Stalker ass Steve or Urkel decides that after all these seasons and years and millennia of being a violent, 
invasive stalker person to Laura and her not wanting him that and endorsed by the family, by the way. Right. So he's stalking her, stalking her, stalking her. And everyone's like, oh, that's so cute. And she's like, no, he's no, he's in my house and he's coming in my window. Oh, how sweet. No, bitch. Like there's a whole boy. (laughs) There's a whole person. But he was harmless. Yeah. No. What the fuck? (laughs) It's like Steve Urkel. Steve Urkel has to be one of the most like the most like threatening characters of the 90s like one of the most passively threatening characters it, he he's like framed to be harmless and he's framed to be like like completely nonviolent but i'm like it is so violent to have this boy walking around this girl's house against her permission against her will her dad who reluctantly but still basically says like hang out with him he's weird right Right. Her mom, like, oh, he's sweet. Come eat some pie. She always had pie for him. She, she really did. Always feeding this nigga pie. And I'm like, that you don't feed my stalker pie. You send his fucking ass home. Where's his fucking parents? Send his ass home. We never saw his parents. Though. Never saw his fucking parents. Hmm. But he had an auntie. We didn't see an auntie. What was uh, Donna Summer? Uh-huh. Yep, she was lit. She should have took his ass home. That's what she should have done. <laughs> anyway, so, so fucking stalker Steve Urkel does all this stalking right and then after all these years realizes laura's like no i said no it's too much good dick out here too many fine niggas out here in letterman jackets and you're whack and laura was pulling them if i remember laura was pulling them laura was laura was in calculus and biology laura was super smart Mm -hmm. super pretty she always had that vertical part on the back of her head with that big hair (laughs) scrunchie on the top and them scrunchie socks that was mismatched laura was in okay Laura was popping and her hair was bumped on the end perfectly every (laughs) week. And she had that, that little slightly pink lipstick. Laura was popping. Laura was popping. So, so, so Steve was, was reaching what he was doing was reaching what he was doing was reaching Mm -hmm. and she didn't want him. She was not interested in him. So he says, okay, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go get my ass a whole fucking machine. I'm going to build a whole fucking machine that will genetically alter my DNA and make me into a whole, whole ass, new ass person. Yeah. It's logical. A whole ass, new ass person. He was trying to shoot a shot. I will be Stefan Arkell. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I'll so, forget that episode too when all those lights flashing. And he rolled around the floor. I'm like, <laughs> okay, like, girl. Oh, no, he's dead. He's not, no, no, he's not dead. He just has a Gumby now. <laughs> So this nigga comes out of the damn machine wearing linen, <laughs> girl, bye, <laughs> and comes to Laura's birthday party, dances to some damn baby face. This is for the cooling you, and that little weird ass dance he was doing, that like drop your knee ass weird ass dance, and of mm-hmm. course Laura falls in love because he doesn't look like Steve now. No, bitch, this is not Superman. You can't just take off your glasses. You're not fucking Clark Kent. We know it's you, Steve. What are you doing? You're that just standing up straight and took your suspenders off. What the fuck are you doing? And just think about how problematic this is. Like, Stefan was really chauvinistic, very materialistic, very shallow, had nothing of any importance to say. Kind of a fucking dick, right? And, of course, Laura's, like, sprung. Just sprung. But but then, over time, she begins to fall in love with Steve. Girl, child. Anyway... And wants to basically merge Stefan and Steve into the first into the same person, right? Because there were some some redeeming facts. there's some redeeming values in this stalker. <laughs> Listen, this is the '90s, and this is what we have here. We have a show that a, a show probably I would argue one of the most prominent and like most popular black kind of nuclear family like respectable shows of the '90s, like. Cosby aside or whatever the fuck. Well, I mean, yeah, definitely. Right. It, it came on TGI Friday. Yeah, this, this was ABC. I mean, right. This was the wholesome, um, what, two hours of the week. Right. This is fucking mainstream. Right. And they're telling us that women belong in the kitchen. And, oh, Aunt Rachel, though, she was allowed to go buy a whole damn restaurant. Right. Mm-hmm. She could have a whole restaurant. But, you know, Harriet... She's supposed to be at home washing boo-boo draws. But, I mean, Rachel, I mean, Rachel's role on the show up until that point was, I'm a single mother. Right. Is living on you. Right. 
So. Right. And if you remember correctly, Carl and Harriet helped her buy the damn restaurant. Exactly. Listen, she couldn't get away without their money. You know what? I'm done. And then we got Stefan, and we're supposed to take supposed to believe that Laura's just gonna fall for Stefan. Because I guess secretly she really loves Steve. And then at the end of the whole damn show, she picks Steve. And that's what we're supposed to be like all happy about. We're supposed to be happy at the end of the show when she picks her stalker of like 15 years. Right. 15 years she's been stalked by this child. And she picks him and we're like, (gasps) and they had a nerd to be at like Disneyland with fireworks in the back. Girl, Mm. goodbye. 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 So I'm just concerned because I feel like in a lot of ways, like that was one of my first examples of like, oh, this is how the heteros do it. Like this is, this is how it it really is. And what's funny is like, it's just like a Disney movie. I mean, that's kind of the story of Beauty and the Beast, right? I mean, Belle, she got guessed on or the beast. And on one side, she got a a violent predator. On the other side, she got a violent predator with fur. (laughs) Which one do you choose? <laughs> Which one do you choose? Pick your adventure. <laughs> and I'm like, and it's really, it's really disturbing because when you really think about like how we learn masculinity and, and like how we learn, like, and this is the, I think the reason why these stories are kind of like more dangerous is because they are implicit and they're unstated. And there's a, a way that they made Steve and Stefan seem normal. Right. Right. They made Steve this kid who's nerdy but who has really predatory actions who's really harming laura every single day well and even honestly even in you talking about it the, the thing that that is striking to me is you think it puts me in the mindset of people that are catcalling on the street right and the idea that i can keep catcalling and catcalling and catcalling and catcalling and eventually I'll just win you over, and then then we'll be in love, and and it'll all work out. Right. Just just like Steve, like somehow if I just keep fighting and I I just keep pushing and I just keep putting myself in your space and, and invading you in all these different ways, eventually I'll just break you down and make you realize that you do like me, girl. And you do want to be. And with he me. said that shit too. I'm wearing you down. That was his line. That shit was creepy as fuck. Like, is that how you really want to get somebody by wearing them down? What are we doing? That's the messaging and the programming. Listen, and I think that's the thing is like, it's the messaging and the programming, but it's not just the messaging and the programming to your point that that's kind of what catcalling is, right? I mean, catcalling and like, I mean, I had someone who was stalking me in high school when I was 15. I had a dude that legit like was following me to the nail shop and following me from the bus stop to like church. And listen, Oakland is not that big, but it's not small either. No. My nail shop was legit like... On East 14th and Fruitvale, my church was in North Oakland off of Broadway and Telegraph. I'm like, I, East Oakland to to International Boulevard, East 14th to North Oakland. I'm like, you legit are working to stalk me. This is this is work. You're putting in work and time and money at this. Mm-hmm. That shit is scary. That's scary. And so I feel like when you watch shows like that, though, and you see that Steve is doing this, and then in the end, Laura picks Steve, then what does it tell like young boys and girls, you know, folks cross the binary, but specifically young boys and girls who identify along the binary who are heterosexual coupling, who are watching these types of messages about dating? What does it teach boys how to treat girls and how okay. girls how to be treated by boys? And I and I can tell you what what is what the messaging is. It's it's telling people that that's how you earn someone right like it's it's how how you find someone to couple with and be with and and find love is by earning it and earning it is basically just putting in a lot of time money and effort and the more you put in the more you can expect to get out and that's why we have people who put in a lot of time money and effort and are touched and then when they don't get what they want, they lose their minds right. because they feel like this is mine. I earned it. Right. Why Why aren't you giving it to me? And it's that's, due. that's when masculinity becomes toxic. Exactly. Right. Right. It's interesting because I think that Family Matters was one of those shows that people see is kind of like kind of monotonous and like, oh, there wasn't anything going on there. You know, there's nothing serious. But when you really start to break down those characters, it's like, no, that actually was some really violent shit that we were watching. Right. Same thing goes for mm, living single. Oh man! Oh man! And this, and this, and this one is tough. Because this one hurts. I love Living Single. Me too. I mean, I love that show. 
And especially when you think about it, it's, it was a show that was led by four black women. Right. They were the four black leads of the show. Right. They were the stars. And, and not even just that they were stars, but they were they they were out in the world. They were working. In a lot of ways, they were dating on their own terms. Yeah. Uh, you know, they decided yes, no, what's going to happen, what's Ray not going to happen. Ray G yeah, was Ray lit. G. I mean, she was like, I'm going to I'm gonna go out and I'm going to be dressed to the nines. Yep. And I'm going to pull whoever I want to pull. And when I'm done, then I'm done. And I'm going to go on to the next one because yep. you're not on my level. All four were like that to some degree. They right. really had a standard that they were trying to achieve. And if you didn't meet that standard, then you were cut off and put to the side. Right. But the flip side of that is, you know, their neighbor, their neighbors, Overton and Kyle. Mm-hmm. Both, I think, really beloved characters on the show. Mm-hmm. I think they brought a lot of funny to the show. They were great. But when you really think about it, we're really toxic in their own ways. Absolutely. So first, obviously, I, I, you know, I think I want to go with Overton because, I mean, everyone loved Overton. You know, he kind of had that, that like that Southern quality to him that that people always find so endearing that you know he's just a simple man and he has simple needs and he's a handyman and you know he has a hammer uh and he was clearly infatuated with sinclair and i think did a good job of not necessarily really bring that bringing that same predatory aspect like like you said steve had but more so really trying to respect her but in a lot of ways really kind of making a lot of traditional rules and, and values and and ways in which their relationship was going to be structured. Absolutely. And I think especially once they were in a relationship, I think that stuff kind of came to the forefront more. I think I think their relationship was really cute and playful as, you know, they were they were trying to figure out, do I like him? Does he like me? Well, what do we do? We're stuck in a room together. Are we gonna kiss? Like that that was I think they made that very um very innocent. And so we didn't see that toxicity really come out until they were actually really coupled together in a relationship. Right. And then for Kyle, his whole role was the serial dater. You know, he was all about his little black book and whichever person he was bringing to whichever event. And and that was kind of his whole thing. It's like, I'm going to go out here. I can get any woman. I'm just so sexed up. And that was his whole kind of presence. And that was his whole kind of character. And he even brought that into his kind of clashes with Maxine. Right. Where they were constantly trying to kind of one up themselves. And Maxine was always trying to undermine undermine his his masculinity in that way to say, Oh, well, people don't really want you and you're not really that that great and you're not and he was always trying to then prove like how attractive he was and how desirable he was and how everyone just really wanted him so bad. Mm-hmm. Which it kind of goes back to what we were talking about before of, of how people put on these these roles and, and these attitudes of what they think a man is supposed to be. And I feel like when they were building that character for the show, they basically said, let's take all the things that, you know, are mannish and just make that into a person. You know, and when you when you think about how these characters played out, the, these kind of roles on the show – it's it's almost like just like we were talking about family matters where they kind of make these things that's to seem light and comical when what's actually happening is is pretty sinister. One of one of the big episodes I remember for, from Living Single is when Overton and Sinclair had that will they won't they thing going on and I think they had actually really kind of just started dating and the episode was about Sinclair trying to assert herself more. So, you know, she had all of her friends Really trying to say, you know, Sinclair, if you want something, you 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 say that you want it and you go after it and you do it. And you have to kind of assert yourself and make yourself known in this relationship. You can't just kind of follow behind Overton and do whatever he says. Right. And then there was – I think they had a disagreement, if I remember correctly. And then they were both really sad and torn torn up about the whole thing, about about the fact that they disagreed. And then they kind of went to their their corners where Sinclair was talking to her friends and then Overton was talking to Kyle. And Kyle was really trying to gas Overton up about you you know what, you man up You the man and you be the man mm-hmm. and you be strong and you put your foot down and you let her know who's boss and you Right. And that's that same thing of, of trying to say that's what that's what masculinity is and, and that's and the, and trying to cast that as a good thing. Or how that's how things are supposed to be, which which is really funny, especially when you think about what happened with Kyle later on in the series, right? Right. So once him and, and Max kind of got over all of their clashes and really kind of became a couple and admitted that they liked each other, his whole character flipped. 
Kyle went from being the guy that was just always always chasing women around, always got a new date for the night, into being the guy that was willing to risk it all. He would move anywhere across the world, do whatever he had to do to get Maxine and, and prove his love to her. Right. Right. And I think it's interesting, number one, that that his character was able to change around that quickly. And that right. was just an okay thing to accept. Like, like the person he was for the last couple of years was just, just all fake and, and phony. But I think that's what they want us to believe, right? They wanted us to believe that that was all performance and like deep down kyle was like secretly like this really great guy and yeah. maxine was just able to pull it out of him it's it's that heart of gold thing like mm-hmm. oh he's so redeemable because there's some goodness underneath all of that shit right right and then, but then they cast maxine as if oh well now now that she's got him now you know oh she doesn't know what she wants to do and she's you know she's she's all wishy-washy and almost making her Kind of putting her in a negative light and really making Kyle look like, you know, the knight in shining armor. Right. Right. And I think it's interesting because, like, I loved Living Single. Like, I loved that show so much. I was so sad when it went off the air. And I feel like it was just, like, majorly slept on. But the male characters were literally my least favorite parts of the show. Like, I could have just done without them. I just did not think that they needed to be there. I thought that Overton made Sinclair's character weird and like not like she was so funny on her own and then Overton would show up and I'm like ugh and this is before DVR so I couldn't fast forward his ass exactly right and I like Kyle I mean Kyle was okay but I always remember being like I'm telling you listen Maxine fine and I was like Kyle okay girl I mean sure if you want that I mean It's one of the, one of those things like you know Overton cute and stuff because he you know light skin had a bald head and everybody thought he was cute in his little overalls and shit. I I was in that shit, but you know I, I think the other issue is that I'm just super super queer. So like <laughs> I'd be watching all these shows, not be looking at the women. <laughs> like damn, she fine. And then I see these dudes and I'm like, mm 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 <laughs> no. But like you know I think I think one of the big things about the about Overton and Kyle. Was that because there were so few males on the show, they tried to do so much with masculinity in just those two people. Right. And they tried, like, they had four leading leading women, and so they could do a lot with femininity, right? So they had a lot to do. That They could have Ray Jean, who was really kind of the feminist icon on the show. And so was, in a lot of, a lot of sense, so was Khadija. Khadija was a feminist, but she was also, I, I would say she was kind of genderqueer. She was very, to me, genderqueer. Yeah. And she wasn't, like, like where Regine was more hypersexed, Khadija was very understated and sexually. And, you know, Sinclair was, like, the silly friend. And, you know, Max was like, fuck everybody. I'm getting mine. I'm a high-powered, was she a lawyer? Yeah. High-powered lawyer. High-powered lawyer. And I'm wearing my business suit with my briefcase. It was her briefcase. I was like, I saw that briefcase, and I'm like, I need to have a briefcase when I grew up. I must have a briefcase, you know? And I think it's interesting when we think about these characters and the fact that Kyle and Carl are both played by men who are queer in real life. Right. And how, like, I think during the show that came out, I remember when I was a kid and finding out that Carl in real life was gay. And for me, that was exciting. I was like, oh, well, that's dope. But then I was like, oh, but that's sad. <laughs> like, because it was like, because I, I don't think there were any non-heterosexual couples on any mainstream TV show that I can remember. I mean, Will and Grace came out when we were kids, but they were white and they weren't like coupled. So it was like he was the, the gay friend to, to to Grace. So like, I don't know that there were any non-heterosexual like couples of no. color. At all. No. And I actually distinctly remember, I can't remember exactly what happened on Living Single or what the assertion was. And I think this this probably happened more than once. But I remember Overton having reactions like, nah, dog, you know, you you overstepping. That's not, you know, really, really, if there's any type of kind of queer assertion or even illusion. Yeah. That whole, that whole like, no homo kind of was, was really prevalent. I feel like Martin had that a lot too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Martin had a lot too, and so it's 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 just one of those things where like you know I I understand it. It was the '90s, and so we had these kind of cultural artifacts, and we love them. Like we love Family Matters, 
We love, you know, living single. Some folks love Cosby Show. I can't relate. You know, some folks love Martin. You know, Fresh Prince. You know, man. Rock. Oh, man, rock. Rock was lit. Thea. <sighs> hanging with Mr. Cooper. You know what I'm saying? It's a lot of stuff that culturally, you know, we we digested back then. And we're very, like, integral in shaping how we came to learn about masculinity, including things that were not entertainment, like, you know, church. Right. I know for me, I learned a lot about men and masculinity from from church. I learned because most of my pulpit was men. Actually, I think all of them were men. Yeah. I don't think there was a single non-male person in the pulpit growing up. So pretty much all the leadership positions at the top, like top leadership of my church were men. And I learned very early not to challenge that, not to challenge them, not to challenge their, their role, not to challenge their perceived calling to do the job, you know? So it's like, you have these kind of like, if you, like, if you grow up not around a lot of dudes and the ones you interact with are either on your TV doing this shit and in your church, like saying, you know, God has called me and you can't challenge me. It's like, well, damn. Like, you know, that's, that's, that's pretty limiting. Right. And I I think that church aspect is a really important one to note too. For me growing up, the church was a place where a lot of my male, like in-person role models were. These were people, as you said, like I saw them in leadership positions. Um, I saw them doing things for other people, being helpful, being kind. And so I kind of saw those as, as some of those, those male figures that I could kind of follow after. But at the same time, when you think about a church and how a church is built up and how a lot of Christianity is based on patriarchy, there's there's something underneath that of these men are supposed to be the leaders. They are the ones that are supposed to be in charge and supposed to be in front. So even if you know they were the, the best people in the world, there's kind of like a greater, bigger story there of how, oh, well, I'm a man and I'm, I'm leading these initiatives. And so, you know, you can train up under me and then you could be the next man in line to be the person that leads the initiative, you know, down the line. You know, this whole idea of of men raising men and, and, and bringing them into the fullness of who they are supposed to be and how we're really directed by what they think a man is or what they believe a man is. And a lot of times their ideas of what a man is came, you know, straight verbatim out of the bible which which we know if you read can be very problematic right it's it's very it's very patriarchal <laughs> if you read it word for word and you don't take it for the concepts that's what it is and then also by by men who had similar patriarchal and, and toxic views you know growing up themselves right i don't know i just think that it's a bigger conversation that we have to have and i know that's very taboo like you know you don't want to reinforce the stereotype that like black men are not present in the lives of their kids and stuff. And that's, I don't think that's what we're trying to say at all. I know that that, that's my experience and that's your experience, but that's not the experience. Right. Right. And I know that what we're really trying to get at is that there's ways to imagine otherwise. Like I'm very big on like, how do we imagine otherwise? And, you know, for us not having our dads around, you know, you learn to just do without and you learn to survive right? Like you figure out innovative ways to, to figure out how to do the things you would have done had they been there. And I think that we both learned masculinity in ways that probably are very non-traditional. Right. Right. And it's, it's probably like, (laughs) it cracks me up with people like, you know, parents need to have a role in their kid's life. And I'm just like, I really hate that shit. I hate when people say that. Like which parents? Not everybody has parents. Not everybody has two parents. Sometimes they're raised by grandparents, aunties, cousins, uncles, friends, you know, fosters, adoptives, whatever. You don't know people's life situation. You don't know what is happening in somebody's household. You don't know, you don't know what people are living in, with, and through. And I feel like a lot of times, you know, like in our, in our feeble attempts to like debunk stereotypes all the time, because I feel like, you know, some of these stereotypes are legit real and based on some real shit i'm not saying like all stereotypes are real and based on real shit but shit i mean some of them fit me pretty well and i'm cool with that (laughs) like i'm totally okay with being a stereotype sometimes i'm fine with that 
for me, like rather than spending my time trying to debunk a stereotype about being someone who grew up without their dad present, I'd rather spend more time reflecting on the ways that I figured out how to be and come into the fullness of my blackness, despite that perceived absence, right? Like, it's not like I have some gap in my life where I'm just like, woe is me. There's not, I don't perceive myself as being, um, as missing something. I don't perceive myself as being incomplete in any way. You know, I, I, I know my dad, my dad's passed on, but you know, I had a relationship with my dad before he passed on and it wasn't the best relationship, but it was a relationship and it's my life and it's my story. And I feel like there's a lot of ways that people, specifically black people, you know, with these narratives and shit, we get hung up on like that Cosby shit that like, how do we make this respectable? How do we, you know, check for this white gaze and make this sound better? Cause you know, the whites are looking or whatever. And I'm just like, I would rather spend my time trying to figure out how I'm navigating my life on the terms that work best for me, showing up in my life in the way that works best for me and for the people around me and learning to love myself and learning to love other black people on the terms that work best for us than checking for what the fuck, you know, somebody else outside my community thinks about my upbringing or like how this looks on a paper you know and i and honestly i struggled with that for a long time where especially that like we're talking about looking at these shows and seeing these nuclear nuclear families and thinking okay well i don't have that and trying to conceptualize what am i missing out on what would i have had if my life was built differently how would i have come out you know who would i have been and thinking, man, this is there's all this stuff that I just missed out on, and I'm just always going to have these voids and these these places where I just these experiences that I just won't know. But then, you know, coming into the realization of, yeah, I didn't have those experiences, but I had other ones that other people won't have. I Beautiful had other ones, great, wonderful people in my life that that nurtured me and poured into me and told me I was great. Right, and you know. Just because I didn't have some experiences doesn't mean that that I'm missing or lacking. I just had different ones, and they made me who I am today, and I think who I am is great. I do, too. Oh, thank y'all. Like what you hear? You can find my mom and dad, a.k.a. That Black Couple, on the web at thatblackcouple.com. You can find them on Facebook at That Black Couple, and you can find them on Instagram and Twitter at That BLK Couple. If you have questions or comments about the show, email them at thatblkcouple at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. And we're back. So it's time for us to reflect on toxic masculinity in the Black family And we talked about, you know, where we learned about toxic masculinity, where we learned about masculinity. We talked about some shows and the black church and our experiences with that. So I think my reflection today about this topic is really about the sanctity of the household and how, you know, I always talk about my upbringing um, and living with a single mom and how it was usually like me and her in the house. And even like, you know, my uncle lived with us for a while. My brother lived with us for a while. But really, a lot of my childhood was spent just me and my mom. You know, and even when my uncle and my brother lived there, my dad had built like a really big, like kind of apartment in the back of the house that was separate from the house. So like me and my mom were like in the house together. So it still was just me and my mom. Like, I think for me, what that meant was that it was really just a bunch of like feminist ass key all the time. Mm-hmm. Like we, it was a really safe space. And so when it came time to talk about like race and gender and sexuality, drugs, money, I mean, shit, everything, it was always through a feminist lens. And so like my mom, she, she, I don't think she like, 
directly identified herself as a feminist. And I don't think she knew she was a feminist, but she had read like Angela Davis and shit. And she knew who Asada was. I mean, this is Oakland in the eighties and nineties. So everyone knows about the black Panthers and yeah. So she knows this stuff and she's experienced it firsthand. And so, you know, when I grew my hair out and cut all my perm off and she was like, Oh my God, you like a little Angela Davis, you know? And so in living in a household like that, it was a safe space. It was a very safe space. And I think that masculinity never actually entered the household toxic or otherwise, you know? So, so I, I, I think for me, it allowed me a lot of space to learn about who I was and how masculinity was going to show up for me. Because I don't think I'm traditionally feminine. I don't think that I have any type of particular embodiment of femininity that is like along a a traditional (laughs) feminine. You know, I was 6'2 at like 12 and I was like 5'5 at 10. So I never really like my body was like, nah, girl. Mm-mm, no, <laughs> you know, and so, and, you know, and I played, I played basketball all the way through eighth grade. So for me and having a really gender queer esque body all through high school that was read often as masculine, it allowed me growing up in the household with my mom, it allowed me the space to really explore, you know, what that was going to mean for me as an adult. And I'm really grateful for that. Like, I'm really grateful to have had that time and to have a mother who was not, who was not the Harriet Winslow. She was not into gender roles. She had by nature, she couldn't be like, she just had to get shit done. The house just had to be clean. Food just had to be cooked. Stuff had to be paid for. Like bills had to be paid (laughs) and I had to be autonomous. You know, she didn't have time to teach me how to be a stay at home mom or teach me how to, like, you know, cause she was like, I remember, I remember I was like 11 years old and she was like, you better take care of yourself. Cause ain't nobody going to take care of you like you. That's one of the earliest lessons she gave me. Yeah. She was like, when we, when you turn 15, we're going to the bank and you're opening an account and you're writing checks. You know, like she taught me how to mail letters. She taught me how to put stamps on shit and like mail letters at like 13 years old. She made me start calling and making my own doctor appointments. You know, I ordered my own prescriptions when I had, when I got diagnosed with my heart condition, I ordered my own prescriptions. You know, those were the things she had me do because she's like, you are not going to be out in these streets and not be able to take care of yourself. And so I feel like in a lot of respects, like that's something I am so eternally grateful for because, because I grew up in a household with a mom who just really did not have time for that shit. Right. It really gave me space to be a full, a full, a full human. A full, like, human person. It's interesting to hear you say those things about your childhood and how you grew up and kind of how your mother shaped you. When I think about my childhood and and how my mother shaped me, kind of the same thing where, you know, we didn't have any men in the house. So I didn't have, you know, a male role model to teach me what it was to be a man. And I never asked my mom, how do I be a man? What do I need to do? How do I need to be? Or... Or how do I act? And she never told me either, which I think in a lot of a lot of ways people might think is almost like a bad thing. Like you didn't have any guidance. No one, no one tried to fill that gap for you. But I think I should, I've never had this conversation with my mother, so I don't know if she did this on purpose or not. But in the same way your mother did, my mom gave me space. So her thing growing up was you can do whatever you want to do. Whatever thing you're interested in, we're going to figure it out. We're going to make it work and you can do it. And it was, gender was never part of the conversation. Like she never said to me, boys do this or men are like this. It was, it was always more focused on me and who I was and what I wanted to be and, and fulfilling those things and not necessarily, you know, slotting any of that stuff into a certain gender or or any other classification. It was really about exploring me and being who I wanted to be. And I, looking back on it, I really appreciate that because it did give me some time and some space to really explore some things and take chances and say, yeah, I want to do this. And not and not second guess it and think, oh, well, if I do this, will people think this about me or will it mean that? Or will... But really just saying, this is something that I have an interest in. This is something that I want to do. This is how I want to be. And then just fully exploring that. I mean, I think about, Thinking about my childhood now and the stuff that I did, a lot of stuff 
in stereotypical ways, people look at it and say, oh, well, that's gay. You know, like. Mm, I hate that which, shit. Which I know. I, it's painful for, for me to even say it out loud. <laughs> I don't even like saying that because it's, it's just a horrible thing. But, you know, I was really into music. You know, I was playing instruments. And what I really love to do is I love to be in choirs. I, yeah. I love to be in choirs. And, you know, because you can sing. Yeah, because I like to sing. I think I, I can hold you a tune. You sing pretty well. Yeah. But a lot of times when you're in choirs, people. You know the stereotype that goes along with that is oh all 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 the guys in the choir are all the gay boys, and then you know and that's just kind of one of their havens where they all hang right out, and embedded know? in that is is this implication that something is wrong with you being a gay boy right right and if or, you had been gay that there's something inherently bad about that and and that and that in being gay right the 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 sinister part of that is that in being gay that means you're less masculine exactly right? <laughs> so, exactly. But I mean, that was what I like to do. You know, I sang at church, I sang at school, I played instruments. I was I was all into that stuff, and I never thought about how that looked to anyone else. Because you didn't come home and have somebody telling you exactly. Yeah, and that and that's looking back on it now. It's one of those things you don't think about it at the time, but looking back on it now, I think, wow, how amazing that was. That as a kid, I mean, literally all the way by through the time that I moved out of my house, going to college, I never had to think about how my choices and how my my interest in in who I'm becoming looks to someone else and is if that undermines like who I am as a man or a boy or whatever or whatever identity that you know I wanted to take on right because you were accepted as you were right like we all should be like we all should be right well I think we should end there okay I'm cool with that you cool with that yeah okay so Y'all, this has been a great episode. Thank you for joining us so much. I want you to make sure that you are looking for more episodes. Follow us on SoundCloud. Also look for us on Google Play because we are up there. You can find us on Instagram and you can find us on Twitter at That BLK Couple. You can find us on Facebook at That Black Couple and on the web at ThatBlackCouple.com. Bye.